It's been called a truly significant new source for Shakespeare. It's been called a once in a generation or several generations find. It's been called a super cool story. And it may be all of those things if it proves to be what they say it is. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. I'm talking about one of the bigger stories in the world of Shakespeare in quite some time. The claim by independent scholar Dennis McCarthy and Lafayette College English professor June Schluter that they have discovered a major new source for Shakespeare's Richard III, Henry V, Henry VI Part II, and at least eight other plays. As you may have recently read on the front page of the New York Times and elsewhere, they used WCopyFind, a piece of software that's usually used to detect plagiarism on a nearly 450-year-old unpublished manuscript called A Brief Discourse of Rebellion and Rebels by a man named George North. They say this is where Shakespeare got the details for the death of Jack Cade and Henry VI, the idea for the description of dogs in Macbeth, the topsy-turvy world that the fool talks about in King Lear, and more. The software works by looking for co-located words, words that appear in two different sources and in identical order. When they used the software to compare North's manuscript and Shakespeare's plays, they found multiple passages that matched each other. When they had the program review the 60,000 printed works in Ebo, the early English books online database, they couldn't find any other source from before the time Shakespeare was writing that exhibited the same parallels. As the scholarly world continues debating and responding to the book, we invited June Schluter and Dennis McCarthy in to talk about it. We called this podcast, Put Your Discourse Into Some Frame. June and Dennis are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Let's start with probably your most remarkable example of, of just how closely some of the passages in North's A Brief Discourse parallel lines written in Shakespeare's plays. And it's the opening soliloquy from Richard III that, that famously starts, now is the winter of our discontent. Dennis, why don't you line up the similarities for us? Sure. So the main similarity is that they're making the same extremely peculiar point. They're both talking about gauging your reflection in the mirror, and then uh, deciding how you should respond accordingly. And uh, uh, as George North says in his manuscript, he says, to view our own proportion in the glass, whose form and feature if we find fair. And when I got to there, I'm like, okay, this is starting to read like the Richard III opening monologue. If you know the language there, it's very similar. That I'm not shaped for sportive tricks nor made to court an amorous looking glass, I. Uh, nor made to court an amorous looking glass, I that am curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated. I, that I'm curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature. Uh, so that's glass, fair, proportion, feature, all coming together, both describing the mirror, and then what comes next is also the same. Blaming nature for deformities, in which George North says, if nature have by skill or will deformed our outward uh, appearance and left us audible to the eye of the world. And again, 
Richard III seems to be have just read George North's passage and says, by dissembling nature. Cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made So that's again, you know, nature and deformed and world. And then shadow comes right after that as well. Time, unless to spy my shadow in the sun and descant on... Nature, deformed, shadow, world. And it's quite clear that the he's echoing the terms of this passage in which they're making the exact same point about judging the outward appearance as gauged in a mirror with uh, inward qualities and how you should behave and how you should respond morally or as a villain. So it's not just ex- echoing exactly the same words, but echoing them, the progression of the idea and the development of the idea all in the same order? Yes. So it's yeah, it's the same words, same ideas in the same order. June, I'd like your perspective on this because I've read the North Passage and and I'd like to actually read it now all in one go so that people can hear that they're the same words and the same ideas but a very different flavor. So George North writes To view our own proportion in a glass, whose form and feature, if we find fair and worthy, to frame our affections accordingly, if otherwise she have, by skill or will, deformed our outward appearance and left us odable to the eye of the world, then to cure, shadow, or salve the same, so to govern and guide our behavior, and so to moderate our inward man, as nature herself may seem to be deceived in use, whereunto no cunning can easier attain than by making our own minds true mirrors of all our actions. So what occurred to you when you first read this passage and lined it up with the Richard III? Well, the starting point, I think, is always familiarity with the Shakespeare text. But I recognized right away that Elizabethan or early modern trope of the ill-formed body which in Elizabethan times was equal to villainy. But I also wanted to say that what we're talking about here in that list of eight terms is not just single words, but also their approximate location of something called word collocations, where in a group of words you have one or more of these terms. And when you see them in two separate texts in the same order. First of all, when you see the words themselves repeated, but then you see them in the same order within, oh, 10 words, 20 words, whatever you're going to be searching for, then you realize that you do have a comparative text, a parallel passage. Dennis, that's a really important point, and maybe you could help us understand it better in terms of the science of this. What are the mathematical odds that this many identical words appear in an identical order, and as June said, this co-location of them in two authors' works? Uh, right. I do a little bit of a math thing at the end in which uh, I estimate the odds, and it's quite clear that uh, it's a really remarkably low number. I, I got one in a billion for the first four words, class, fair, proportion, feature, within the 
16 or 20 words that both authors uh, place them in. It's that unlikely. Uh, and it's hard to get a grasp on these numbers, but in the book you say it's like winning the national lottery twice right. in a row. So to do that to do that with the first four words and then hit again with the next four words, it's that unlikely. So it's not by chance that Shakespeare is using these terms and is thinking with these words and has shaped his passage with those words. It's He's clearly echoing prior passage, not plagiarizing, as some have said. This is clearly a rewritten passage by Shakespeare, and it's clearly a much more beautiful passage by Shakespeare, but he's been inspired by that original text. And let's look at this other passage uh, that, that you examine in depth from Henry V about bees and, and the order of the universe, which also seems remarkably similar to what North wrote. And June, perhaps you could lay out some of the highlights of, of that one for us. For so work the honeybees, creatures that by a rule in nature teach the act of order to a peopled kingdom. Yeah, the overarching claim of George North in his brief discourse is that rebellion is always wrong and rebels will always be punished. And he uses the society of bees and ants to show the proper order of things. They have a king and officers of sorts, where some, like magistrates, correct at home, others, like merchants, venture trade abroad. So this is reflected in the exchange in Henry V between the Archbishop of Canterbury and Exeter. So again, we see the parallel passages when Canterbury is talking about the Society of Bees and when George North is talking about the same society. So are you saying that what's so remarkable is that it's not just that these same words appear in the same order here with the ant and the bee and, and detailing the division of labor in the bee's kingdom and, the, and their duties and comparing it to the divisions among humans, but also that Shakespeare seems to take some of North's allusions and themes as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, in all of these parallel passages, the question of context is always important as well. And that gives you further evidence that there was a relationship in the two texts when you see that the context it's being used in is the same. Okay, so Dennis, you said that the mathematical odds of having so many similarities between two works in different instances of this is like winning the national lottery. But is there any danger in analyzing literature this way that you might fall into a confirmation bias? And by that, I mean some studies using this plagiarism software, they go looking for specific words and themes in specific passages, and they pretty much cherry pick, which is a surefire way often of confirming your your bias, of finding what you go looking for. Well, yes and no. In terms of uh, source uh, study rather than authorship study, it's relatively, you have to cherry pick in terms of, you have to show the resemblances between two passages in order to indicate whether there was some obligation from one author to the other. Uh, but it's been for centuries and it's the same idea. If some text has certain information that is not found or is very rare in other texts and you have the similar language, you have similar phrases, similar terms. You know that Shakespeare has used this source rather than some other source. Help, help me understand that, though, because in the Richard III passages, 
you selected a group of terms that occur in a this small window of text, and then you find that those terms co-occur only in a small window of Shakespeare. But what if you chose other terms, selected other terms? For instance, what if you searched for form or worthy or or frame or affections instead of the words you did choose? Wouldn't you find a new combination that would occur, say, in Fletcher or Johnson? Uh, certainly that's possible. And if you do find that, that's another work that is connected. Uh, I did go through a few searches like that. And you don't really, you occasionally do find some passages that are similar after Shakespeare wrote. So if you do find other terms or other phrases, rare phrases, if you find enough of them, and they're both making the exact same point, it is nearly impossible to argue that the works have no genetic connection. In other words, either one source is an ancestor to the, one work is an ancestor to the other, or they're related through some other text. Those are the only possible explanations. Two authors are not going to write the same passage about the same peculiar idea and continuously use the same content words. It's just too unlikely. It's important to say how expansive the EBO database is. I mean, there are 60,000 early modern texts in that database, and Dennis submits all of these terms to a search of those 60,000 texts. And very often, the use of the word is rare or unique in Shakespeare and George North. Oh, that's remarkable. So, so how did all of this come about? And, and Dennis, how did you first come upon George North's book? Uh, I found it in an old auction catalog. Uh, I was searching for a uh, possible sources for Shakespeare connected to the North family. And I was looking through auction books and uh, came across a notice of this manuscript, which uh, was up for sale in 1927. And they even noted that it was, you, you should compare the uh, passages on Jack Cade with those in uh, Henry VI Part Two. And remarkably, no one had done that. I think if other scholars had come across it, they just would think that there was no way it could have been a source. There was no other notice of this work anywhere else. And I immediately uh, wrote June. I said, June, we have to find this. And I want to hear June's side of it. But first, I want to ask you, why were you looking at the North family? Well, I uh, believe that it was reasonable to think that uh, there might be sources that are there. I will be trying to publish another book. Uh, showing the connections and trying to explain how Shakespeare used the George North manuscript. Uh, but that's down the road a piece. I, in we, June and I invite other speculation on how Shakespeare could have uh, gotten access to this manuscript. And there's lots of explanations. It could have been copied uh, and there could have been copies circulating around London. Uh, and Shakespeare may have even, uh, the Lord North had a lot of uh, theater troops at his house, and uh, including the Queen's men. And Shakespeare could have been part of there. He could have copied the manuscript at that point. So, June, jump in here. How, what's your connection to, to Dennis's scholarship? Well, first of all, the connection to Thomas North is one that has been established for about a century now, and that is that Shakespeare in the Roman plays used as his source Thomas North's translation of Plutarch's Lives. Right, he's known as the great translator. Exactly, and every Shakespearean acknowledges this. But curiously, I don't know of work beyond that. I don't know whether for his other plays people have searched Plutarch's Lives to see whether there's a connection, or I don't know 
whether scholars have looked at the three other translations that Thomas North did to establish that there may have been a connection with Shakespeare. Huh, three other translations of what? Thomas North has three other translations other than Plutarch's Lives. One is Dial of Princes, the other is The Moral Philosophy of Donne, and then there's another one with a very long An title about Epipeminidus. So I never saw any scholarship that mined those texts for some connection to Shakespeare. So when Dennis said he's interested in the connection between Shakespeare and the North family, I thought, yes, of course. And we actually searched for that manuscript, the George North manuscript, for over a year with disappointing results. And then finally, uh, I sent off an email to uh, Tony Edwards, who is emeritus at the University of Kent and a manuscript expert. And I told him what we were looking for. I showed him the catalog entry. And within weeks, he wrote an email and he said, I think your manuscript is in the British Library. And he gave us a shelf mark for it. And it was a shelf mark that we never would have thought of exploring. So Dennis immediately requested a copy from the British Library. And within a few weeks, I went to the British Library so I could hold it in my hands. And it was quite a thrill. Okay, let me see if I if I have this straight. You're poking around in in looking at the the North, looking at Thomas North, and you find this catalog entry making a connection between a brief discourse, this unpublished manuscript, and Shakespeare. Is that right, Dennis? This is the genesis of this. Sure. Yes. And it has some curator's entry that says, "Oh, you might look at." at Shakespeare and you might find something. It seems like he's the one who made the big discovery. Who is this guy? I, we don't know. It was anonymous. Uh, Mr. Anonymous writing for the catalog. <laughs> it was Myers and Co. And I don't think they're extant any longer. It was a big auction house in London. So that's amazing. So then, then you couldn't. You spent a whole year trying to track this down, and you finally found someone who just put his his finger on it in, <laughs> right. in a couple of weeks. And and it was. Why was it so difficult to find? And why was it misshelved? No, no, no. It had every right to be there, but it was just a little piece of the history that we didn't uh, know about at that point. But the Earl of Guilford and the, I think, 7th Lord North were one and the same, and they were at Roxton Abbey, and we just found a whole thread of history here that we hadn't known of, but now we know. And I should ask, now, who was George North? Well, it is more than likely that he was a cousin. He did, after all, spend time at the North family estate, Kirtling Manor, in Cambridgeshire, the same time, by the way, that Thomas North was there, and that manor was owned by the second Lord North, Roger. But George North actually did three translations, uh, this, the description of Sweden and the philosopher of the court and the stage of popish toys in 1561, 1575, and 1581, respectively. And we read the dedications in each of those and learned something about how he styled himself. He was a, a, a soldier and a scholar. And, of course, we saw who he dedicated his uh, translations to and learned as much as we could from that. 
and his name does appear sometimes in the calendar of state papers. So whatever we could gather on him, we put into the first chapter of the book, and yet he's still somewhat mysterious. So that there's a family connection, uh, we're quite sure, and yet we don't have the birth certificate or anything else that would secure that assumption. Okay, and in going back to the connection that's made in the uh, by the by the mysterious curator in this <laughs> catalog entry, he his in the auction house, it said something like Shakespeareans would be very interested in comparing what this manuscript says about Jack Cade with what Shakespeare says about this. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what really excited Dennis. And Dennis must have gone mad when you saw that. <laughs> what, what, Dennis what is used then? to functioning with exclamation marks. You know, he's uh, very emphatic and <laughs> <laughs> when he writes and uh, he gets excited when there's a discovery, as, of course, I do, but perhaps in a lower key than Dennis. <laughs> okay, well, why don't you tell us about that? What was it like when you saw that? What was your reaction? Uh, I was extremely excited. There were different moments of extreme jubilation and shouts of excitement uh, in my house at different times. The one is exactly seeing that manuscript blurb, that little comment on the manuscript saying, hey, it's extremely interesting to check this out with Shakespeare's uh, work on Jack Hayden and Henry VI Part II. So I was very excited there. Immediately, of course, wrote June. Wait, you emailed? That was the first thing you did? Emailed? Like, like OMG, OMG, June? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't get on the phone. In any case, so I was very excited about that, but still we were hoping for just one thing, just maybe one element that would be good for a paper, you know, that, that it could possibly be a source for the Shakespeare canon, that this might be where he got one of the ideas of, about Jack Cade is what we were hoping. And when we read it and found out exactly how important the source is, that, then it became that much more exciting. And, you know, in each time with the... Richard III, the Henry, the Kingdom of the Bees thing, which was unbelievable. And, you know, it's, again, more shouts of excitement. And then June calms me down a little bit. <laughs> and June, for, for, for the rest of us who don't know the Jack Cade story that well, why don't you explain the, the parallels between Jack Cade in, in George North and Jack Cade in mm-hmm. Shakespeare's Henry VI plays? Wither garden, and be henceforth a burying place to all that do dwell in this house, because the unconquered soul of Cade is fled. It's Cade that I have slain, that monstrous traitor. Sword, I will hallow thee for this thy deed, and hang thee o'er my tomb when I am dead. Yeah, well, Jack Cade, of course, was the commoner who led the, the rebel revolution into Henry VI with his own claim through Edmund Mortimer to the crown. This was back in 1450. He was an historical character. And George North makes certain comments about his death, the final hours of his life, that don't appear in the chronicles of Hall and Hollinshed, which, of course, were uh, very frequent sources for Shakespeare. And I suppose the third most frequent source would be Thomas North's uh, Plutarch's Lives. None of them talks about the final hours of Jack Cade in these terms. Tell Kent from me she hath lost her best man and exhort all the world to be cowards, for I... Never feared any. 
I'm vanquished by famine, not by valor. And in fact, scholar after scholar who who have analyzed these final moments have said this is purely Shakespeare's invention. Hence will I drag thee headlong by the heels unto a dunghill which shall be thy grave, and there cut off thy most ungracious head, which I will bear in triumph to the king, leaving thy trunk for crows to feed upon. And when we saw the George North manuscript, and we saw that he was talking about Jack Cade starving, so much so that his limbs were emaciated, he had to eat grass, And he dies because he's so famished that he can't fight effectively against Alexander Eden. And then after he's dead, we have Eden saying he's going to drag the body by the heels and leave the corpse to be eaten by crows. That's not in Hall. That's not in Hollenstead. And yet there it is in George North. Well, so exciting to, to find yes, this. Indeed. I can't I can't even imagine the two of you uh, uh, emailing back and forth. But it does raise the question for me of what the software analysis tool does for us in this kind of work, mm-hmm. if Shakespeare scholars notice these similarities anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, it searches the early English books online, 60,000 texts. You cannot do that through reading. I mean, the principles of comparison that form the basis for source study are there whether you're using software or not using software. But when you're using software, you can do searches that are so much more comprehensive of other texts to see whether you're right when you say, this is unique to Shakespeare and George North. Yes, to to that end, for example, even after we had found that clearly Shakespeare's using George Orr's manuscript for his own death scene of Jack Cade, once you run it through plagiarism software, you find things like, for example, Jack Cade in George Orr's manuscript is left for carrion crows and worms meat to eat me flesh and fell is the line. And this plagiarism software just immediately jumped to York's line in Henry VI Part Two, just a scene or two later, and made a prey for carrying kites and crows, and clearly for carrying crows and worms meat was echoed. Shakespeare is not only using the exact same death for Jack Cade, he then echoes that exact line, and uh, that's something I would have never noticed myself without plagiarism software. There's a number of other lines that make it very clear that jump out and that help you find other passages that that at least I would have missed had I not had the... uh, had I not used the software. Uh, this is coming at this then from a completely different tack, but can you imagine that, that any uh, any kind of troublemaker might use the current technology to make a claim that George North could be Shakespeare? No, that would be impossible and ridiculous. <laughs> There's no... Uh, you. What's If I may jump in on that, it, it's so clear that... Uh, it's only it's only a few passages, and Shakespeare's rewritten it in his own language, and uh, it's uh, quite clear that uh, George North is an okay writer, not great. Uh, Shakespeare liked the ideas that he collected and collected all into one manuscript, but uh, he's definitely isn't uh, uh, any more than that than a 
and author of a, an important source. Okay, now here's the big, maybe the uh, the uh, sixty thousand dollar or the six hundred million dollar question: If North's book was never published, how do you figure Shakespeare ever got the opportunity to read it? That is the important question. It's always possible that it was circulated in manuscript and that Shakespeare had access to it. Again, it's possible that Shakespeare could have been with the Queen's men, for example, at the time in the 1580s, in which who visited Kirtling Hall. And it's possible Shakespeare could have uh, made use of the library at that point and even copied it. And there's also the possibility of an indirect source, whichever it is. So you, so you mean maybe somebody else read Jordan North's manuscript and then wrote about it, and that might have gotten into Shakespeare's hands and might have influenced yes, uh, his po- writing? It's, that's another possibility as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this is taking a step back for a moment and looking at the at a bigger picture. But when I first heard about, uh, when I first read the New York Times article, it made me think that every time we, we hear about Shakespeare's inspirations or Shakespeare borrowing from other works, that it raises this question of whether it changes our idea of what kind of genius Shakespeare was. And and perhaps people hear how you two are using plagiarism software to identify these source texts and other scholars, and they, and they might think, oh, what, was Shakespeare cheating somehow? So what do you think the takeaway is here for how we should think of Shakespeare and his artistic process? I would say it was very much like the artistic process of other playwrights at the time. That is, if there was material there that you could mine, that you could be inspired by, then by all means, put it to good use. I'm glad you asked the question about plagiarism, though, because it's unfortunate that the software is called plagiarism software. It doesn't detect plagiarism. I mean, it identifies parallel words and phrases and word collocations and parallel passages, but It takes the literary mind to process all of this and to decide just how original the work is or how derivative the work is, and then to ask, well, does it matter? I believe it was the Telegraph in London that said, so Shakespeare plagiarized, so what? There was no such thing as plagiarism in Shakespeare's time, and There's a line in in G.B. Shaw's uh, Major Barber that I always liked. It was, I would take money from the devil himself if I could put it to God's use. And I think that's what Shakespeare is doing, taking turns of phrases, taking words, taking ideas, and putting it to good and often better use than it had been used previously. Well, another thing that your uh, research brings up that is really as exciting is that you're using the software to look at uh, the database of, of these published works that are, have been digitized. This George North manuscript was unpublished, and a lot that was written in the era that we're talking about was never published. I mean, we've done podcasts about recipe books from, from that era, and we did a podcast on a few pages from an unpublished manuscript that talked about Shakespeare and his buddies uh, drinking at a bar that Chaucer named in the Canterbury Tales and carving their names on the wall. I mean, there you don't we don't know what was unpublished that is yet to be 
discovered. So might there be more manuscripts to discover that Shakespeare could have mined for for ideas? June, what do you think? I think everything is possible. And you so found things in, in the North's family papers, correct? Oh, yes. Things that, uh, unpublished uh, ephemera, like uh, I believe it was a household account you found. Yeah, in fact, I haven't even told Dennis about this yet. But when I went to the Bodleian in Oxford and looked through the George North papers, I found several pages of another household book that we haven't even looked at yet. But yeah, we have a few other manuscripts too that uh, we plan to work on. So a household book that might say, you know, what they paid for certain things and, and because there was a there was a dinner and we ordered six pheasants and so-and-so and so-and-so came and masked, yeah. who knows, someone who might have known Shakespeare. Yeah, we have uh, a household book from Roger North. And I know Dennis is working on a manuscript that was partially published in our time and that has some very interesting stuff about the North family. Oh, Dennis, what and is we that? Have to, and we have what to be we quiet talking? about that. <laughs> uh. Remember how we had to be quiet about the George <laughs> North manuscript? Right. right. Oh, you're going to sign the Folger to an NDA now. <laughs> yes. 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 Well, we're going to have to stay tuned then and have you both back. And it was such a pleasure to talk with you today. I can't wait to, to well, hear thank you. what else you find. Mm. Well, do invite us back after the next book is published, because you'll see excitement number four. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks again. Thank you very much, Dennis. I appreciate it. June, it was such a pleasure. My pleasure. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. June Schluter is the Charles A. Dana Professor Emerita of English at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania. She and Dennis McCarthy are co-authors of the first published edition of A Brief Discourse of Rebellion and Rebels by George North published by Boydell and Brewer in 2018. They were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Put Your Discourse into Some Frame was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. Esther French is the web producer. We had technical help from Virginia Prescott of New Hampshire Public Radio, Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Neil Heber at WDIY Public Radio in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. We hope you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. And if you are, we hope you'll do us a favor. Please consider reviewing the podcasts on whatever platform you get the podcast from. When you do that, it helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it yet. We'd really appreciate your help in increasing people's access to these remarkable interviews. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.